people who come here from wherever, when they honor the tradition of their ancestors, they're not being disloyal to America, they're being conservatives. And yet they're blending that in with the American fabric. And that's something that we as conservatives should celebrate. When Swedish Americans and Italian Americans do it, we love that. And we should love it when Indian Americans and Iraqi Americans do it too. Welcome to Our American Experiment, a podcast that engages leading thinkers and doers, creatively working to strengthen the United States of America, the longest running experiment to defend individual liberty and promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. In many ways, the life of Ovik Roy was pretty predictable. He had gone to MIT, later Yale Medical School, and he was investing in companies and making a lot of money. And then something happened. When he got excited about healthcare reform and looked for the leading experts, he couldn't find anyone. So it had to be him. On today's show, a conversation with Ovik Roy, a man of many talents who is redesigning the traditional think tank. I'm Evan Baer. This on Our American Experiment. My name is Ovik Roy. I'm the president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, and I'm also an editor at Forbes. Oh, it's fun to hang out. Uh, I get to see you regularly at all sorts of interesting policy and other discussions, but a chance to spend 45 minutes together to talk about a wide range of things. So thanks for coming on the show. Excited to to dive in. I want to start with trying to understand you a little bit because you're a bit of a um, hard to pin down, hard to understand how all these influences and jobs and vocations you've had all kind of come together. Let me start with uh, with a basic one. When you meet a new person, uh, how do you introduce yourself? When someone says, you know, what do you do? H- how do you answer that question? Well, you know, I introduce myself by saying I'm Ovik because, you know, that usually uh, is a sufficiently unusual introduction that it that it's, <laughs> starts a conversation. I, I often joke that my, my mom gave me a funny name that no one could spell because it was an icebreaker at cocktail parties. She was kind of worried that I'd be antisocial or something like that. <laughs> um but when people do ask me the question, what do you do? I, I, I also joke, I'm like, well, you know, I, I have to explain that to my mom all the time because, uh, you know, half the time I don't really uh, have an easy answer to that. I mean, mm. I, I guess my life, my career trajectory has been a litany of failures. You know, when I was eight, I wanted to be a shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. And I was convinced that I would be the next shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. And it wasn't until I was about 10 or so that I realized that actually I had no shot of even being a varsity baseball player, let alone a major league shortstop. And then I thought I'd be an astronaut. And then I had, turns out I was nearsighted, so I can't be an astronaut. So I thought I'd be an astrophysicist, which is the next best thing if you love planets and stars and explosions. But then it turns out I was too dumb to be an astrophysicist. So um, my dad, who was a molecular biologist, he kind of, you know, he'd been pushing me from birth to just be a chip off the old block and follow in his footsteps. So I finally surrendered to that. And then I went to college with the idea of being a molecular biologist, but then I just sort of felt like I was too dumb to be really good at molecular biology, so I'd be a doctor instead. And then I went to medical school, but I felt like, you know, med school is fun, but there's this revolution called the internet that I'm standing right in Mm. front of here, you know, in, in college and med school, and why don't I do something with that or with biotech? And then I ended up back in, in the biotech world, uh, uh, when, uh, then unknown investment firm called Bain Capital called and said, Hey, do you want to help us understand the, the human genome project and biotechnology, this new sector that was just emerging in the early two thousands. And that led me on a career on wall street for a bunch of years as an investor in healthcare companies. And I, I'd spent some time in, uh, college and medical school dabbling in student politics, uh, uh, one of the things I did, among many others, was I was chairman of the conservative party, the Yale Political Union, in which uh, Yale has, as as many of your listeners may know, a this this really robust ecosystem of debating societies, uh, and ours was one that was focused on political ph- philosophies. We spent a lot of time debating like Aristotle, Burke, and Locke, and libertarianism versus cultural conservatism or traditional, and all those tensions. Uh, and I, you know, I always been interested in politics, but I kind of left that behind when I when I went to the investment world. But it's always in the back of my head. And then what happened was in 2009, uh, uh, Obamacare started to take form, and uh, I wasn't really reading anything that I agreed with, and um, that led me down a rabbit hole in which I started a blog on healthcare policy, which ended up taking over my life. 
And next thing you know, I was uh, I was working at a think tank, the, then the Manhattan Institute, and then I um, got asked by the Romney campaign to help them uh, work on their health reform plan for the 2012 election. Mm. How many random people with opinions get asked to do that? So sure. um, the next thing you know, I was working on that campaign, and then he, of course, lost, and I thought I'd go back to Wall Street, but what ended up happening was... Uh, a lot of people ask me, okay, Ovik, you, you're this like healthcare guy now, free market healthcare guy. What should we do now that Obamacare is actually going to happen? What, what should we do? And so that led me on this, basically this path where I ended up kind of by accident leaving my old investment career, still managing my own investments, but leaving my professional investment career to, to be a public intellectual, to, uh, to, to write uh, about not just healthcare policy, but really all areas of policy. And, and hearkening back to that um, student uh, debating society stuff, you know, I think what I found was not only did I have a contrarian take on healthcare uh, in terms of being a, fr a free market guy who believes that free markets can achieve universal coverage, but also a guy who was contrarian more broadly, hmm. uh, that, uh, that, that the conservative movement needed to um, apply those eternal principles in a new way and that we'd been we'd been stuck on this formula from 1955 that was failing us in the America of 2018 uh, and that how do we how do we solve that problem uh, and uh, and that uh, that you know, sp spending more time on that led me to where I am now which is uh, starting I started a think tank called the foundation for research on equal opportunity that and we can get into to how all that connects. But uh, but that's that's kind of what I do when I when I when I'm when I'm filling out forms for like my kids' schools where they say what's your occupation I say I run a nonprofit because I figure in Austin that's probably the like the cool thing to say sure sure uh, but but when I'm talking to uh, obviously conservatives I talk to them about my think tank work yeah. and my Forbes work and it's just one thing or another well, I, at the least what we just did was we established the table of contents for the next sixteen <laughs> podcasts oh, we're going to do with Ovik uh, <laughs> you've lived many 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 lives. Uh, I do want to get into how you're trying to be an innovator in terms of how we advance ideas, but just widening the aperture for a minute, how is conservatism doing in America today? I think it's doing pretty badly. We've dined out for a very, very long time on the defeat of the Soviet Union. That was the one, that is, in fact, the one great accomplishment of the conservative movement over the last since the since World War II, or the last 70-plus years. We defeated the Soviet Union. Now, that's great, and that was very important, and the work of Bill Buckley and uh, and Barry Goldwater and Ronald Reagan and many others uh, contributed to that, and, and, and frankly, many Democrats, too. Let's not forget the role of Truman and, and the role of Kennedy and a bunch of others. Uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, Reagan really was the one who brought the Soviet Union down, you know, animated by the ideas of, of the conservative movement, Bill Buckley in particular, and that was a tremendous accomplishment. It was also, in a certain way, the easiest area for conservatives to actually accomplish things because foreign policy is an area that is the, where the power resides effectively solely in the president. So a president who has a particular view of the world uh, can, can, uh, can impose that, that point of view on, on the agencies, or at least attempt to, and, and, and run the country from a foreign policy standpoint in that way. And so what he was able to do uh, with the Soviet Union was a large, largely a result, uh, largely a product, not entirely, because Congress had to participate in terms of the defense buildup and things like that, but, but it was largely uh, Reagan's initiative that was able to get that done. But where did Reagan fail? Reagan failed uh, at reducing spending, at reforming entitlements, uh, the things that we're dealing with today, the debt and deficit problems we have today. Reagan did no better than better than um, uh, current, uh, more recent governments. In fact, he you know he had he basically mostly dealt with Democratic Congresses. The Dem the House was controlled entirely by Democrats during his tenure, and the Senate was uh, you know a, a mix. But in general, uh, they were able to cut taxes. Cutting taxes is is politically easier because you're giving something to people, but cutting spending or reducing the trajectory of future spending that's been a lot harder. And um, if you look at the, you know, the scale of regulations, how, you know, how what, the regular growth of the regulatory state and, and how that's impacting our economy, Republicans have aided and abetted uh, that problem. You know, if you, in particular, it was George H. W. Bush who, by signing the Clean Air Act into law and the Americans with Disabilities Act, two laws he signed, uh, he he agreed to sign because it was kind of late in his tenure and he was trying to, you know, win uh, uh, favor with moderates, I guess. 
But those two laws in particular drove a huge explosion of the regulatory state, as have a number of other things that Republicans have supported. So the regulatory state has exploded. Spending has exploded, not just because of Democrats, but also Republicans. And culturally, uh, if if that's a a pillar of, of what we think of as American conservatism, Culturally, the world is very, very different than than what uh, the cultural conservatives of 1955 hoped it would be. Given the discouraging assessment of the advancement of conservative ideas, I want to talk a little bit about the apparatus that tries to advance these ideas. Um, you've been a part of a number of these institutions. I've had short stints. A, a common pillar in this infrastructure is the think tank. Um, so on the right, AEI, Heritage, Cato, Manhattan Institute, uh, various uh, state-level groups as well. And it seems like their basic model is they have a development team which raises money, which enables the payment of salaries for these scholars that sit around and do some original research. And uh, they write and they publish, and their strategy for advancing ideas is uh, writing those ideas out usually with words and having people read those words and hopefully be persuaded by those things. And that's a dramatic oversimplification. But I was actually interning um, for Charles Murray at AEI and I was talking to this fellow in college and I was asking, you know, so how does AI advance ideas? And is when they're at their old location and this guy took me upstairs into the dining room and uh, there's nice dining room with guests there all the time. And he's like, see, that's where we do it. I was like, wait, looks like they're kind of eating the, you know, they just went to the buffet. Like what, what's exactly happening? He's like, no, this is influence right there. And kind of the idea was it's people building relationships and trying to advance ideas in terms of how they had published. So that's a model that's been around for a while. First, assess that model. Uh, do it, Well, maybe first, did I describe that model correctly? And then uh, assess that model for us as we kind of get into free op and how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that that's definitely an element of it. You know, it, it, a lot of uh, uh, trying to get, trying to make, you know, make better policy is relationships. It's building relationships over time. It's it's being credible so that when policymakers and the people who work for policymakers are looking for new ideas to improve a particular uh, uh, aspect of policy, they, they look to you and they, and they trust your ideas. So much of it is trust and mm. credibility. Like, mm. Are you somebody who, you know, shares their values on philosophy, obviously, but also are you an honest broker? Are you the kind of person who's just out to promote yourself or are you are you actually about the, the policies and the ideas and, and actually trying to come up with something that's going to be better for the country, uh, better for their boss, uh, better for themselves, I guess, in a sense, politically, uh, that matters too. But let me actually push you on this just a little bit. I think it was attributed to the Reagan administration uh, that personnel is policy. And, and this idea of trust, I mean, because my, my, my uninformed intuition would say, um, if you were a president hiring cabinet officials or a head of a think tank hiring someone, you actually want to know where are you on the issue and you want to hire someone who's kind of like an absolute expert and you know exactly where they stand and that's why you pick them because they're going to carry out what you believe. But this idea of needing trust or needing relationships seems to kind of introduce something that's not merely analysis that goes into the crafting of policy. Help me think about that. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you're if thinking about it in the context of cabinet appointments or other appointments to the the federal government, you know, by a president or by the president's staff, it absolutely meant the trust stuff matters in the sense that, you know, you want somebody who understands that his obligation is to serve the president, right? So you may have your own ideas about what to do, but um, nobody elected you. They elected the president. And so your job is to execute what the president's agenda is. And that's where kind of trust and honor and, and a certain ethics really does matter, mm. along with just the onyx of being, uh, the ethics, excuse me, of being about public service and about, you know, understanding that this role is not about you and, and, and advancing yourself. It's about, uh, about putting the country above your own interest. It absolutely matters, the ethics of it. But, um, you know, it's. I think I want to make sure that we we emphasize that that's only one aspect of policymaking is is the executive branch, right? For the for a lot of the problems that that we deal with in my think tank uh, and the problems I've certainly invested my own energies into, you need to Congress needs to pass laws. It isn't enough to have a great HHS secretary or a great um, you know a Treasury secretary or a great chairman of the Federal Reserve. You've got to have laws that that 
our change in order to make sure that we that our children grow up in a non uh, insolvent country, right? And and that is a much harder process that yes involves you know reaching out to those policymakers and and being and being a, a credible uh, asset to them, but it's also about uh, influencing public opinion. And this is something, frankly, that our friends in the progressive movement have a much more sophisticated and thoughtful understanding of how to achieve than conservatives do. We tend to think, okay, we've got some great idea, and if we have a great idea, that's enough. And if you think about, for example, the gay marriage debate, um, you know, Andrew Sullivan is widely credited as being the guy who really introduced this idea. We need to change the law so we have, you know, we legalize gay marriage because uh, I'm a conservative, you know, Andrew Sullivan would say, I'm a conservative and I believe that marriage is a civilizing institution that will actually make uh, the gay community in America more conservative in a sense, or at least be able to live more conservative lives. And um, that was quite controversial, actually, in the 80s when he first pitched this, because a lot of people on the left were like, marriage is a bourgeois construct that we need to destroy, right? And of course, people on the right were, were not particularly thrilled with this idea either. Um, but then over time, uh, really through popular culture, through shows like Will and Grace and, and other uh, uh, mechanisms like that, people who really uh, believed in gay marriage and wanted to see gay marriage become legal, they shaped the culture. Uh, and the culture is what changed public opinion, which then changed what policymakers thought. You know, Obama was against gay marriage when he uh, ran for president, and by the end he was for gay marriage. Sure. Hillary Clinton the same, right? And that was driven not because of any expert who told them that gay marriage would uh, be good policy. It was because public opinion changed. And that's something that think tanks need to do, too. And it's a lot harder, obviously. Yeah, much bigger battles to win. You're not only trying to get... Uh, 50 plus one of 435 members of the House, it's, uh, you know, tens of millions of Americans to uh, believe something right. differently. Well, I did interrupt you earlier on the question of the think tanks. So uh, Heritage and these organizations have raised tens or hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to publish and, and support scholarship of many of our uh, luminaries. How would you assess the efficacy of the conservative think tanks? I think uh, they've been efficacious or effective in many ways, but largely in doubling down on the conservative movement as it already exists. I th and I think that is the big problem, is that, and this goes back to the earlier conversation we were having, is that what American conservatism is, at least conventionally understood to be, was driven by the work of, of Bill Buckley and his colleagues when they basically created National Review in the early 1950s. And the idea was that there would be these three pillars of, of American conservatism. It would be free markets uh, on the economic side. It would be cultural uh, traditionalism and conservatism in terms of the Christian tradition in particular. And it would be anti-communism abroad. Those would be the three pillars. And that formula did work to, and particularly again after Goldwater and Reagan, you know, I think the Republican Party today really does reflect a lot of those principles, and uh, and rightly so. The particular challenge has been, I think, on the cultural side, hmm. where um, what we fail to appreciate is that cultural conservatism itself is not uh, is not one leg of the stool. That's where we've really failed, I think, and what has evolved in a sense is this kind of white consciousness driven nationalism uh, which in which um, the view of many people in the conservative movement sometimes explicitly stated sometimes not is that if non-europeans continue to grow in in proportion uh, demographically in america we're doomed we'll never be conservative because conservatism in america fundamentally must flow from the premise of the european tradition to me, if that's true, then we've already lost. If we believe that our principles are reserved to people who come from a particular part of the world, that they're not universal principles that make life better off for everyone, then we've already lost because that's not what the other side believes. The other side believes their philosophy, their ideals make life better off for everyone. And if we've decided that the only people who can really appreciate or benefit from liberty are Europeans or people of European ancestry, then we deserve to lose. Here we have a, a scientist, a doctor, an investor, a uh, writer, a thinker, a conservative debater who cares about these ideas, thinks largely all we did was 
defeat communism in the 80s, which was good, but we've had 70 years. We should have a few other wins. You're kind of depressed about the state of these ideas you care about. You see this sort of atrophied apparatus of think tanks focusing on the wrong issues. And then you have an idea for a different way to advance these timeless ideas. So the ideas aren't really new, but the method, the innovation is, is, is at least in some way around the method of advancing those ideas. Is that the right frame for how you were thinking about free op? Well, the only thing I disagree with in what you described there is that I like to think of myself as not depressed. I'm generally a pretty happy guy, um, you know, and perhaps I think that's why I do what I do. I mean, if I really, if I believe that we were doomed to failure, why would I spend all my time trying to work on, you know, addressing these issues, sure. right? It would be just better to go back to Wall Street and, you know, and do that uh, where I where at least, you know, there's an opportunity to succeed at something, right? Um I do the work I do because I actually do believe very strongly that the opportunity exists. In fact, it's we're ripe for the opportunity to uh, resynthesize those classical conservative principles in a way that is far more broadly appealing to the America of today than conservatism currently is. Uh, I, I think that it's, again, I think most people who... Uh, who, who, are, who listen to your show, who, who are politically aware, appreciate that, you know, a big part of the conservative movement today is, you know, the Christian tradition. And look, I'm a Christian. I very much value the Christian tradition. And if you don't agree with me, by the way, just think about the fact, you know, imagine, imagine the Republican Party nominating for president someone who was not Christian, right? It could happen. But the likelihood of it happening is pretty low. Imagine the Republican Party nominating a Hindu or nominating an atheist, um, right? It's just very unlikely because um, there are not enough people in the Republican Party who vote uh, based on the idea that, well, you know, with the exception of maybe our current president, and, and that's a whole other complicated topic, uh, that 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 we people people a lot of people in the in the conservative movement believe that if if you aren't a Christian, then you can't possibly advance my values and be a, rep, a spokesman and a representative for the things I believe in. And uh, that's, uh, that's kind of ironic in the sense that, because if you think about it from a standpoint of the history of political philosophy, most liberal political philosophies originate in one way or another from Christianity. Richard Weaver uh, in the 1950s wrote a book called Ideas Have Consequences. It's all about the argument that the Protestant Reformation is basically the reason why Western civilization is so liberal. That this idea that you are your own priest instead of getting orders from some authority uh, in, the, in the Catholic sense, that's, that's a big part of why there's been this, um, this, uh, this uh, directional liberalism in the West. Now, Richard Weaver is one guy. That doesn't mean he's right. But the point is that most other religious traditions are actually much more conservative, small c, than Christianity is. Uh, and, and if we think about it again in that Burkean or Aristotelian sense of, of what it means to be a conservative, to believe that, um, that tradition matters, that uh, the way things of people have done things in the past through trial and error, that they've learned from that, that we don't want to just throw away that baby with the bathwater, that that matters in terms of social cohesion and culture and, and our success uh, as individuals and our ability to flourish. All that comes from having a social fabric that has been continuous and incrementally improved upon. That temperamental conservatism is a, is, is a human quality. It's not uh, reserved to any one particular cultural tradition. If we think about it that way, and we say, hey, the traditions of the East and the traditions of the West have things that are meritorious in terms of what they bring to America and what they bring to families and the ability of people to live together and grow together and succeed and care about their advancement, the advancement of their children. There's a lot we can do to build on that to say, hey, conservatism is, in fact, about making every American better off regardless of where they came from. It's not only reserved for Christians. It's for everybody. Uh, and we really have to mean that. We can't simply say it. We really have to mean that. I think a lot of times we say it, but we don't mean it. I want to pick up on a thread I found interesting. Um, Finke and Stark wrote the kind of canonical work on um, sort of economy of American religions. And so they're religious sociologists and look at the rise and fall of religions in, in America. And uh, they write a lot on the democratization of American Protestantism in the 20th century. And it is kind of interesting uh, to think about, so in the way, in the Protestant world, the way uh, um, 
denominations rise or fall is, is really on membership. And uh, the way when denominations rise or fall, it's sort of like implicitly adjudicating kind of which one is more true. So if you have like, you know, 10 times the number of Methodists over the Presbyterians and like kind of over time, it's kind of like the Methodists went out. But then you think about how these individual consumers are making decisions. I mean, I once went to a church in Washington, D.C. that was known for its parking ministry. It's a ministry that helped you park quickly in the parking garage to be able to get into the, you know, veritable uh, airport terminal of a congregation and sanctuary this place was, uh, with Starbucks on the congregation, you know, in the terminal and get it on the way in. And it's kind of in and out. And so what's interesting to me as a Protestant is that this sort of um, individual decision-making about which church we go to, which denomination over part, is a very individualistic and consumerist. Uh, there's, there's rarely an element of a sacrifice. There's rarely an element of like, uh, I'm stuck in this place. I don't like it that much, but I'm here for having a duty uh, here because of my loyalty or fidelity. And, you know, the Catholics is like, what church you go to? You're in this parish. So you're sent to that particular place. And I just wonder is we, you know, hear about, you know, the suburbanization of America, individuals making, you know, quick choices, some of the Trump rhetoric around, you know, unemployment is high, you know, sit tight, we're going to bring your jobs back. Like, do some of these things ring true for how you're thinking about how conservatives are thinking about opportunity? We have this consumerist mentality, whether we see it in our religious decision-making, our neighborhood decision-making. Is that a problem you see in the conservative movement? You know, there are a lot of people who theorize that one of the reasons why Americans are more church-going than Europeans is because we have more of an active, because of separation of church and state, that we have more of an active choice to, to be a part of a, a religious community than Europeans do, where in many European countries, the state uh, assesses taxes to support the church. But the churches are empty, but they're all subsidized by the state, actually. However, I'm not so convinced that, that the American uh, churchgoer or temple-goer is a consumer in the way that you've described it. I think it's a lot more like sports teams, where... Hmm. You, in theory, could like abandon the sports team that was the, the your hometown team and choose some other team. Like, you know, I, I lived in New York for many years, but I grew up in in the Detroit area, so I could have abandoned, say, the Detroit Pistons and rooted for the New York Knicks, or, or when I lived in Boston, rooted for the Boston Celtics. But I would never do that because in the '80s, when I was growing up, the Detroit Pistons, the Boston Celtics hated each other, and I would never root for the Boston Celtics. Right. And yes, I had the freedom to choose. I could have just put on a green jersey and been a Celtics fan, but I would never dream of doing it. And even when my Detroit sport teams, their sports teams are terrible, they're still my teams. Right. And I think religion is more like that, that actually, yes, there are times when we can break off from from our, the religion of our parents and and choose a different one. I did that. My, my parents, my da dad was an agnostic atheist and my, my mom was a devout Hindu and I became a Christian. So I did what you described. I was a consumer. But I would say a, a lot of times we're not, and that's okay. Uh, that 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 loyalty to the tradition of your ancestors or the tradition of your, or your place is is a profoundly conservative instinct. That again is very much at tension with what we think of as conservative, which is the consumerist piece. Right? That's actually more classical liberalism. The conservative thing to do is to say, my parents did this, my grandparents did this, and that's what I'm going to do. Right? And and when I talk about how to apply these eternal tensions and principles to the conservatism of today, it's that. It's not merely to think of us all as consumers, but to actually recognize that people who come here from wherever, when they honor the tradition of their ancestors, they're not being disloyal to America, they're being conservatives. And yet they're blending that in with the American fabric. And that's something that we as conservatives should celebrate. We should want the people who come here from all over the world to bring their traditions to America. When Swedish Americans and Italian Americans do it, we love that. And we should love it when Indian Americans and Iraqi Americans do it too. In that context and with that context, let's talk about free op. So we've got a lot of threads going on, a lot of things happening in your mind. We corrected, uh, you're not a pessimist, you're an optimist, you're hopeful. You're doing this because you believe that change is possible. Um, Tell us what free up is, and talk a little bit about um, how you are thinking about innovation in advancing ideas. So, and I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Uh, there's there's two core ideas that motivated 
myself and my co-founder, Ames Brown, to, to start Free Up. And they both have to do with a critique, shall we say, of, of the institutions in the conservative movement of, of today. The first is that we spend a lot of time in the think tank world, unconsciously at times and consciously at other times, solely feeding the Republican Party with ideas. Technically, think tanks are generally nonprofits. They're 501c3s. They're supposed to be nonpartisan. But in reality, and this goes for democratic or progressive think tanks too, basically most think tanks that, that you've heard of that are well-known, they've picked a team. They're either on the Democratic team or they're on the Republican team. And, I, and that, there's a role for that. You know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but if you're trying to achieve major change, you know, if you're trying to pass laws that make a real difference for everyday Americans, under the rules of our system of government, uh, uh, I shouldn't say our system of government, but the rules that we have in the Senate in particular, you have to get 60 votes to pass meaningful legislation in the Senate. That means you have to have bipartisan majorities to actually achieve major reform. That's what Charles Murray did. You mentioned Charles Murray before. Charles Murray, he wrote a book called Losing Ground, which convinced Democrats that our welfare system was broken. Right. Republicans, of course, already believed that, but right. he convinced Democrats by looking at the empirical data and showing that, hey, the war on poverty is failing, and if you believe in lifting people out of poverty, you should be concerned about the fact that the welfare system of 1965 is not working. And he persuaded the Bill Clintons and a lot of other people in what was then called the Democratic Leadership Council to, to embrace those ideas. I've heard some people say that Perora, the Personal Responsibility and Workforce Something Act in 1996 under President Bill Clinton was the most conservative piece of legislation in, in the last 50 years. Yeah. And, you know, that's a, that's a model uh, for what for free up. You know, I often ask that question. Like, what do you think, you know, is the greatest conservative domestic policy accomplishment passed by Congress and signed by the president of the last 25 years? And I think that I think that is the one. Um, you know, I, I don't think tax cuts to me really uh, count because tax cuts you can you can achieve with a 50 vote majority. And at the end of the day, the, the size of the government isn't measured by how much it taxes you. It's by how much it spends and how it spends what it spends. And, and the welfare reform bill really was transformative for millions of Americans who are at the bottom of the economic ladder. So that was a, a powerful, that's to us a powerful model. And, and again, what was it that Charles Murray succeeded in doing? Yes, he had an idea, but it was not merely that he had a good idea. It was that he persuaded Democrats that that idea had merit. And that's how a Democratic president signed uh, that welfare reform bill into law. And any insights in terms of how he did that? I mean, Losing Ground is, is filled with tons of data and also story. Uh, he's a great writer. But I mean, it, on the other hand, it doesn't seem that unique from, from more modern conservative writers who have data and story and things. Like Anything about Murray's approach that you think was effective? Yeah, I think that what Murray did, uh, and this is something that, that the, the, the conservative or liberty movements don't generally do well today, is he really framed the argument in terms of how best to expand opportunity for those who least have it. So the unifying principle for really Americans more broadly is you know, not every American believes there's, there's people both on the left and the right who are hardcore and ideologically and don't believe that this is a, a, a worthwhile concept. But most Americans believe in the idea of equal opportunity. We may disagree about exactly how to achieve it or, or what it means, we basically believe in general in the idea that it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, where you came from, that what makes America great, what makes America exceptional, in fact, is the idea that you can come here from anywhere, you can come here from any circumstance and rise up and be the most successful person in America, the richest, the, the most famous, the most successful in your profession. Well, however you define success, you can do that in America. Uh, and it doesn't matter where, what you were, what circumstances you were born in. That's what makes America special, exceptional. Truly, what makes America exceptional as a country, uh, and and that's something that that Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and progressive centrists all believe for the most part. Overwhelming, if you look at public uh, research data, it shows that. And this is what Charles Murray tapped into: is that if you actually frame public policy questions in terms of how to expand economic opportunity for those who least have it. You can take free market ideas and make them uh, more broadly attractive. 
because again, they're about improving the lives of those who most uh, need that improvement in their lives. Uh, and that's something that conservatives, that's a language that conservatives rarely use. Hmm. Conservatives typically will justify the, their policy ideas by saying, let's do X because it will shrink the size of government. Or let's do Y because it's more faithful to the Constitution. Those are basically the two arguments you'll hear people say. Let's do X because it's Oh, maybe the third might be expand liberty, but shrinking government, expanding liberty, I think of that as the same. You know, so that's basically it. It's more of a, a procedural argument than it is a results argument, right? It's a procedural argument that limiting government is good. Why, you know, is, is left to the, to the listener to sure. in, infer. Um, and uh, instead, if we actually said our, our goal, our mission is to expand economic opportunity for every American, and we just happen to think that the way to achieve it is by being more faithful to the Constitution or by limiting government. A, a quick maybe nitpicky point. When I hear the phrase... Equal opportunity uh, rings in my ear from the uh, Equal Opportunity, Equal Employment Opportunity Act mm. uh, of '72, which I think kind of created the EEOC and established grounds for suit in federal court on um, possible discrimination across several factors. I think um, race, ethnic origin, religion, a handful of others. National national origin, I think. And so when I hear equal opportunity. I have this slight little gut reaction to think what they really mean is equal outcome. And it seems to be a phrase used by the left. So I'm curious, educate me a little bit on what is equal opportunity, uh, our economic, equal economic opportunity or economic opportunity. What does that mean? And are you being deliberate about choosing that phrase? Great question. So that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier when I said that there are people on both the left and the right who don't like the term equal opportunity. There are people on the left who don't like it because Equal opportunity is not enough. Equal outcomes is what matters to them. And there are people on the, on the right, or maybe the hardcore libertarian right, we might say, who think equal opportunity is itself statist. Because if you want to achieve equal opportunity, how do you do it? Well, you have to have things like public education to make sure that poor kids can have a chance to, to rise out of their circumstances, right? And that means that you're basically a statist because there, there requires a certain level of government activism in order to achieve some sort of equal opportunity. And to your, your other point, you know, yes, there are, uh, there are people who, who kind of take the term equal opportunity to mean equal outcomes. And there will always be a push and pull in a debate as to the degree of government activism necessary to preserve or advance equal opportunity. But that's precisely the point of FRIA, is to litigate that debate, to be part of that debate, to join that debate, and to say, okay, um, our goal is to say, again, we're free market oriented. We want to achieve equal opportunity with the minimal federal intervention possible, the minimum government intervention possible, the minimum economic distortions, uh, because we believe that actually it's free markets that do the best job of equalizing opportunity, right? Where, where have we lifted, been most successful at lifting poverty all around the world? It's in economically free societies. So our whole point is to say that it's freedom that has done the most to expand economic opportunities. Regulation rewards incumbents, hmm. right? Regulation and, and most, you know, kind of most laws reward people who already have the resources to navigate those laws. They don't help the entrepreneur. So is, is a level playing field analogy fair to say um, people, have, people can have the same opportunity economically when they live in a neighborhood free from violent crime? And they live in a, a neighborhood or a family that has several people that express love and affirmation for them. When they're given an education that through hard work they can continue learning. Is that sort of how you think? Like when we serve people with meeting some basic fundamental human needs, then, hey, we can't promise they're going to make a bunch of money and live as wealthy people. But we can say that they have been given a chance to have equal opportunity in the market. Yeah, and I, I would add two others to that. I would add the ability to be free from the risk of bankruptcy if you get hit by a bus or you have a stroke. And I would also add to that list the ability to choose the profession or career of your choice without regulatory uh, barriers, right? Interesting. So, okay. so yeah, but there's a whole suite of, of policies. You know, one might be um, to be able to actually afford a house, to be afford a place to live at a time when 
we're driving up the cost of housing in America through all sorts of different policies, both at the state and local levels and at the federal levels. Yeah. But basically, there are all sorts of things where we are making life more expensive, more challenging, and, and, it, and making it harder from a legal standpoint for people to live the way they want to live and advance themselves in that way. But yeah, it's all those things. I love finding ways where my uh, conservative inclinations lead me to think stupidly, uh, which happens regularly. But what I appreciate about this is, you know, even in you saying uh, adding affordable housing to that list, you know, have this initial little knee-jerk reaction of like, oh, that's a bad idea because the only solution must be for the government to provide more housing for people. See, this is exactly my point, Evan, is like this, what you just described, and we, you alluded to it earlier, this is precisely what I'm trying to attack, right? Is that we on our side, when somebody says equal opportunity, when someone says affordable housing, when someone says universal health care, we just have this like, ugh. But in fact, it's free markets that can achieve all those outcomes. And our emotional resistance to those words, the voters know that. And voters are intuitive. They get that. They see, you know, we all in our everyday relationships, we know when someone is just saying something or when they really mean it. And that's true in politics too. And that is the problem with the conservative. What you just described is exactly what we're trying to address to say, look, we as a movement need to do a total 180, where instead of being grossed out by the idea of uh, advancing opportunity for these individuals, we embrace that and we actually point out how it's our philosophy, our ideas, our policies that can achieve those goals. We had an interesting visit recently. It's a really interesting place called Community First, a village in Austin, a housing community of the formerly homeless. And um, you initially think, you know, you know, 1970s brutalist cement buildings filled with homeless people and drugs everywhere is the opposite of that. It is completely privately financed. But... There's some very interesting kind of free freedom-related principles that are kind of operating there. Um, so freedom maybe plus responsibility. So uh, month one, new residents must pay rent. There are no exceptions. So everyone is paying. Um, another piece that was super interesting to me was um, the emergence of a desire to uh, generate income and not not just make money, but kind of have a purpose. We were walking through uh, one of the areas of the village, and there was a man named Mr. Pickles. And on the front of his 400 square foot tiny house, it was a kind of a graffiti sign with Mr. Pickles. He had had a stroke. I think he had nearly died. He'd been in the hospital, and he's recently back out. He's called Mr. Pickles because he makes pickles. And he brought out with this spunky woman who was a neighbor this batch of pickles that he had just made and uh, they were selling them and he wanted to sell pickles. And uh, I bought a jar of pickles and he was like, oh, you know, wait a month. I just put them in. They're not ready yet. I was so struck in the moment that there was something really interesting about this principle of freedom, the principle of being able to participate in the economy that for Mr. Pickles in that moment, in that tiny house, that he had done something and contributed in a way that someone else valued in a voluntary exchange. There's dignity in there. And so that for me was a, a, a helpful reframe to say, gosh, you know, rehousing the homeless, I usually think as, oh, that's a project of social justice warriors. How cool to see principles of freedom manifest and make something in this case actually work. You know, and, and what I've been struck by uh, in similar contexts is, is how often the people who are doing the work, that kind of work, think of themselves as Democrats, even though so much of what they do is conservative. Uh, there's this movement in the nonprofit world of, 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 of charitable organizations where they really focus hard on metrics. Like, okay, it's not enough to say we're a pro-education nonprofit. We actually need to measure how often our kids are graduating and how successful they are at math and don't fund us if we don't actually achieve these metrics instead of just saying, you know, rewarding us for our intentions. And these, these groups are, are run by people who are passionate Democrats, but who strongly believe that the government and traditional sort of, you know, liberal kind of fogginess isn't working and has failed. And I think to myself, whenever I hear them talk, it's like, these people are all, you know, they're, they're conservative entrepreneurs, but they don't think of themselves as conservative entrepreneurs because of that icky feeling that the people in the conservative movement get when we talk about these things. 
And that's that cultural change in our in terms of our movement is is a big part of what free up is trying to do. And 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 you know, there's an old adage in academics, right? Those who can't do teach. So you know, uh, and maybe something like that's true in the think tank world, where you you lose a bunch of presidential campaigns, so you start a think tank. But I think the only way we're going to change what the conservative movement stands for, so that it can again for for its ideas to have broad currency and broad purchase is to, 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 to create institutions where we say, look, it's not icky to believe in these things. And by the way, rising generations, for rising generations, this is especially important. Forget about the demographics. We talk a lot about the demographics of rising generations. The actual, the kind of mores of rising generations are much more passionate about this point, about the point of, it's great to be an entrepreneur. We love Mark Zuckerberg, we love Steve Jobs, but we want entrepreneurs whose work serves the public interest, that actually makes communities better off. That really matters to us. And there's a room there for a, an entrepreneurial capitalistic philosophy so long as it sheds the, the, the feeling of ickiness towards lifting people out of poverty. As we move to the end of our time together, unfortunately, as you think about through your, your lens of this hopeful optimism about the prospects of conservatism as a set of ideas in the country, free up being uh, already and in the future a catalyzing agent for that think out think out uh think out 25 years from now what are maybe one or two things that you hope free up could have really really done for this set of ideas is it certain policy victories is it demographic things is it getting people to think differently what's some of your hope in the context of what free up could do in this environment Bill Gates has a, a a phrase which I think actually I learned from from you, Evan, because I think you put it up on a slide once at a presentation I I, re, I, read, I, I saw you uh, you give I think it was you said the line said never put Randy Balmer on the stage <laughs> no 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 that different one different one okay it was uh, uh, people often overestimate what you can achieve in one year and underestimate what you can achieve in ten years and and that really has stuck with me because I think that is absolutely true of think tanks. Mm. If you think about the history of American think tanks, you, you think of someone like the Heritage Foundation, right? Heritage Foundation, we think of as the, the one, of, if not the great conservative think tank, one of the very uh, greatest mm. conservative think tanks, right? The peak heritage moment in American history was 1981, when uh, the Heritage dropped this phone book-sized policy proposal, set a policy proposal on the, to the, on the desk of the president, Ronald Reagan, said, here, here are all the things we think you should do to reform the country, right? right. And here are the things we think you can, you know, your FCC can do, your FDA can do, blah, blah, the, blah. Uh, the mandate for leadership. The mandate for leadership, right? Yeah. right? What people forget is that the Heritage Foundation was founded in 1974, meaning it was less than seven years old when uh, it produced that phone book that changed the Reagan administration, Right. And so uh, I think of that and, and there's there's a lot of other analogs I could give uh, in terms of think, t think tank history. But I think of that very much as the model for free up is is in the next 10 years, what have we actually accomplished? And I think 10 years, there is a lot uh, that could happen. Right. So we've got the situation right now where, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're having this podcast in, in 2018. Uh, Donald Trump will presumably run for re-election in 2020. And so the next opportunity for a Republican presidential candidate who's different from Trump is probably in 2024. Uh, and and that's a fair amount of time from now. That's six years from now. A lot can change in both the Democratic and Republican parties and their composition and their philosophies between now and then. But particularly, it's going to be very interesting to see um, what the Republican presidential candidates of 2024 and 2028 and the Democratic presidential candidates of 2024 and 2028 think and what policies they advocate and, and what policies that, uh, the, the members of Congress and senators uh, around them advocate. I, I think there's a real opportunity to say at that point, uh, by that point, that, hey, uh, this is how conservatism needs to change in order to be a nationally uh, a, a majority movement again. I mean, it's amazing to remember that Ronald Reagan in 1984 won 49 states. He only lost two, he lost Minnesota because Walter Mondale was from Minnesota and he lost DC and he won every other state. Think about how amazing that is. Ronald Reagan, who was hated, hated by 
by liberals, despised by liberals. They thought he was going to, they, they, they argued that he was going to lead us into a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. He won 49 states, right? Um, that was when, uh, you know, the conservatism of 1955 was, and, and Reagan as a person, right, and the way he made it something that was welcoming and attractive to every American, that was something that the 1984 presidential election really showed. I think there's an opportunity to do something like that again, where um, the right tone, the right, that, 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 the, that right kind of sentiment and philosophy of how free markets and freedom and liberty can make life better for everyone. Someone who comes along, and maybe someone we already know of, but someone who comes along in that, in that time frame, the 2024 to 2028 time frame, who really says, hey, this is what I am passionate about. This is what I'm committed to. Here is the set of policies that I am going to try to implement that are going to make life better for people who are struggling with their housing, with their health care, with their ability to start a career, uh, to get an education. Here's what we're going to do about all those things. I think that's going to be a really interesting moment because I do think there are a lot of people out there who look at the politics of today and say, I've got to find a way to rise above that. I've kind of, I've got to find a way to appeal to people who are in, who think of themselves as being voting, voting for a different party than the one I'm in. And whichever party figures that out first, um, you know, I think our goal is to be a part of that project. We appreciate that challenge. Just even in this conversation now, I am trying to sort of step out for myself and see how, um, your language in some cases just leads me to have these sort of subconscious, irrational reactions to things. And uh, I'm certainly going forward will be much more curious about that. Um, I also look forward to our next nine parts in this 10-part series. Over. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for all you're doing and um, taking risks and leaving behind uh, traditional careers that are uh, probably uh, more lucrative and more expected uh, to take risks to advance these things that we know will make this country a much better place and uh, facilitate flourishing of so many more millions of people in this country and around the world. Thank well, you. Let's hope. let's hope. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Evan. This has been Our American Experiment, a podcast about the longest running experiment to promote human flourishing the world has ever seen. 